Last week, I had some microphone issues. We're trying to figure, it's like, once you get something taken care of, something else happens, and wireless microphones, there's a receiver back here, and it plugs in, and it's just awkward how it goes. So if it goes crazy, that's on me. Dylan's not here today. We'll figure out how, how all that stuff works. Um, the artisan community is alive and well, especially with the revitalization of urban areas. People thought that uh, in, the, in the 20th century, that mass production is what would rule the day, that we'd want everything just, you know, exactly the same way. Some of you, and I don't, I don't know if I'm older here, but I grew up on like Wonder Bread, which when you look at Wonder Bread now, you know, that's what I grew up. It was like, you know, this, this idea of this is what it was like to consume bread. And then you're like, oh, really? That's kind of crappy bread when you've had bread from anywhere else. And what we're seeing, I mean, is it true? And some of you are like, I got Wonder Bread in the closet at home, or the pantry. You're like, in the closet, pantry. Some pantries are closets. Don't spill your coffee and, and don't admit what kind of bread is in your pantry at home. Um, but, but that's also happening in other places, right? Because you'll see that the idea of homemade crafted is coming back. It's probably best seen here in Cincinnati. Oh, I didn't flip my slides. Best seen here in Cincinnati with downtown and over the Rhine every month is the city flea. Do some of you cool urban hipster type people spend your time and over the Rhine? Have, has everybody been there? You go to the city flea, and there's all these things set up, and you're like, you know, in a normal place, I would never need that. But then you see it, and you're like, I got to have it because, like, somebody labored over this product. I think for us, it's novel because we don't live in a place and a time where there's, like, itinerant uh, consumer opportunities, right? Like, we, we, we usually, when we need something, go to a store, a brick-and-mortar place of business— or we even now just click online and then we have we avoid it all together. And this is exciting in some ways because you get access to new things, but then it's not because what we've missed is that this is basically a, a reclamation of the old peddler system. Are you are you familiar with peddlers? Maybe you've seen it in an old timey movie where somebody would show up on a horse and a buggy and everybody would go out to it. I mean Seriously, one of my favorite musicals is Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, there's a peddler like throughout it, and he's going up and he's selling wares. And apparently, at some point, it, really, the plot of it's fascinating because he sells drugs from his peddling wagon, and then the, the main actress like kind of ODs on it. It's really great. I mean, anyone see that? Have you thought about that? Oklahoma is really like an advertisement for cocaine. I'm really second cup of coffee ready to go, but I didn't spill mine. The issue is, see, that's where I worked it in. I'm done. The issue is, though, the thing about peddlers that were novel is that you could actually go and barter with them, right? Like you would go, if some of you have been in another country where the bartering system is alive and well, you can have this exchange where you go back and forth, but that just does not happen anymore. If you go down to the city flea and try to barter with somebody, you might just get stared to death by them. They're like, look, I've got a square reader, pull out your credit card, let's get this over with. We're not going back and forth. Friends, we always long for what was past. Shakespeare, in his play, The Tempest, wrote that what's past is prologue, meaning that in some ways, oh, and that's our sermon for the month, and I didn't even put this quote in here. What's past is prologue is the Shakespeare quote for us to understand that we, we, we go and look at what once was, not just for bits of nostalgia, but for us to better understand where things are heading 
And that's what brings us to this morning's text. We've been studying through the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians, and this week we're on chapter 3. We'll actually go through this next week as well. But the beginning of chapter 3, what we have is Paul recollecting his journey. And we are going to see what from his past can help transform our future. So Rob's back with us. He was just on his cross-country tour. He made it back. He Instagrammed that stuff real good. That was my one request. So go see Rob's amazing journeys across the United States. How many miles did you drive this week? 2,000 plus. That's mighty. We're still praying for you all with the loss of your brother. And, uh, but we're glad that you're back with us. Safe. Our church is a better place when Rob is in it. That's why he's going to read aloud. And like I said, Rob, we're going to start really simply this morning with verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about Paul, this guy who wrote the book. And it's like he's repeating it just so that we know who is the person who penned this book. And the thing that he is discussing here is part of his journey. He says, a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. To understand this, we need to understand a broader aspect of the story of Paul, which took place in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a narrative of the beginning of the early church. And the latter chapters of the book of Acts discuss the idea of Paul having an an engagement with some people who wanted him dead. Paul returned back to the city of Jerusalem, the place where Jesus was killed. And as he went back to Jerusalem, some of the Jews who were still in charge of the temple got very angry at him. The reason he was angry was that word that was here in verse 1, the idea of Gentile. We talked about this last week and some previous weeks. Gentile just basically meant non-Jews. And if you were a Jew in the time of Jesus and in the time of Paul in the early church, you did not see Christianity as part of your story. Because your story was God has saved our nation, the nation of Israel, and then everybody else is on their own. They've got to figure out their relationship with God. What the early church was doing is saying, hey, Jesus is for everybody. It takes a small family and it blows out the walls and allows a lot of people in. And when Paul then went to Jerusalem, there was a hubbub started because of him walking around Jerusalem with those who were not Jewish. In Acts chapter 21, verse 28, we see the plea against Paul. And the Jews were saying, look, everybody, let's get Paul because he teaches everyone everywhere against the Jewish people, our law, and this place, meaning the temple. And besides that, he brought Greeks. Greeks were non-Jews. They were Gentiles. He brought them into the temple and defiled this holy place. So you see the tension right there. And this is what's happening in the rest of the New Testament after Jesus comes. It's trying to say that the good news of Jesus is good news for everybody, regardless of what your nationality is. And that's that same news that is good for us today. Now, here's what's interesting. It's a slow path, but if you read the rest of the book of Acts, this little argument blows up into a big thing where Paul then has a series of hearings in front of very important people. And the reason Paul could do that is that he was both Jewish and a Roman citizen. And it was that citizenship that gave him a hearing. So he went from the king over uh, the area of Jerusalem. And where he is now, as we're reading this, as he's writing this book to the Ephesians, is that he is in Rome in a house arrest situation. And the reason he's in Rome is because eventually he is going to be able to have his case before Caesar himself. So this 
small, insignificant dude in the Middle East ends up with an opportunity to have a hearing before the most powerful person in the world. But until then, he's a captive. He's a prisoner. So as Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles, he's speaking literally here, right? My daughter and I, by the way, had a great conversation this week about the word literal, because in her fifth grade context, literal is like a term that repeats itself over and over. And I forget, she, she used literally, you know, this week, and I was like, let's talk about, you know, the, the figurative expression that you hear. There's no figurative in some of the things that we say literally. But Paul was literally in prison, but here's the rub. He was also figuratively imprisoned for the Gentiles because what he did is took his life and put it at the feet of this work. And as such, he let go of some of his freedoms because he loved other people, sacrificing his own life for that of others. Now, Paul's not really a braggart. He's very you know, usually just basic, he's bold, but there is a point when in another church, people were like, hey, Paul, really, like, you know, how special are you? You know, like, you talk, 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 and you tell us, you know, don't do this and don't do that, but, like, really, what have you done? And Paul then says, uh, opens up his can on them and gives him a list, a full list of everything that he endured for this call. Paul writes, I've worked harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death, death and death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, which is awkward. But understand this is that there was a provision in the law that said how many um, lashes you could receive. And the limit was 40. And that if you went over 40, the person who miscounted would then be subjected to the lashing themselves. So what they said is like, make sure you count one less to hedge your bets and we're all safe. I would have gone minus three I wasn't back then. Maybe they were better at the maths. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the moon. I've been in danger from rivers. You know, because rivers are dangerous. In danger from bandits. In danger from my fellow Jews. In danger from Gentiles. In danger in the city. In danger in the country. In danger in the sea. You know, I will not eat green eggs and ham. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep because of all that stuff. You're like, hey, by the way, I'm not getting my REM in. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked at the same time. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the church. What Paul is saying is, look, there are certain freedoms that we have in life. I have sacrificed those freedoms. I have undergone a a, a figurative imprisonment. Why? Why did he subject himself to that? Because Paul saw the bigger picture. And the picture here was to understand that if I can do something right now with my life that it's going to benefit people, I will do it because that's what I'm called to do. And how does he do this? He mines into his past. What's past is prologue. And think about then in our lives, have you mined your past and explored your spiritual lineage that you can give adequate appreciation for those who have put you where you are today. You can look at this at multiple levels. I think we need to look at a, maybe just even a personal development level, right? Who has invested in you that has allowed you to be in a situation today where you're receiving the blessings that you have in life? You know, we talk about this a lot because some of us probably in this room have not had to overcome nearly as much as people have had to in third world countries. We were blessed to be born in certain contexts, but even if we've had these bad experiences, who's poured into you 
to put you in a place where you are today. Because that's what Paul has done for all these people. And, and, and understand this, not just Paul doing it for the Ephesians or for the church in Corinth. We're the beneficiaries of what Paul went through here too. Spiritually, what is your lineage and who poured into you that you need to thank? You don't have a hard time. I mean, I'm 40 years old. I try to make it a habit as I call my parents once a week. We live in the same city. Don't see each other that frequently. But I still want to make sure I call them. And I've been becoming more habitual about that. And the reason is, if it weren't for them folks, I wouldn't be who I am today. My family wouldn't have the benefit from me. So this is maybe your guilt thing to call your mom today. But more so than that, if you're going to call, maybe call and say, you know what, thank you. Thank you because you invest in me to get this. Maybe it's not your mom. Maybe it's a grandmother, an aunt. If, if it's somebody's past, is there somebody alive that you can think, mine into your path, find your lineage, and give appreciation for that. And where we need to project forward then is asking ourselves, who am I investing in now that will benefit in the same ways I have? And you're like, well, that's why I have kids. So if I have a kid, that's my job. No, it extends beyond that, friend. Because Paul, we, we don't know if he had kids, Nothing in the scriptures reflect that. And yet Paul was able to pour into people repeatedly. And some of us just need to do that. Who can you pour into right now whose future you can alter because you are giving up freedoms, your time, your resources. You are figuratively imprisoning yourself so that their future might be better. Think about that, Rob. Let's read the next verses, verses 2 through 6, please. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is doing here is repeating some of the concepts that he has previously. So you've been with us, if you've, if you've heard or listened online in our teachings on Ephesians, the main point Paul is trying to get into here is that the church is a mosaic, Right? It's a bunch of pieces coming together. It involves pieces that even some of the Jews did not consider. It involves people outside of that. And God is doing something miraculous to bring this together. What Paul has to say is, look, I'm giving you this message. And as he said in verse 1, I've undergone imprisonment, literal and figurative, to get you all to this place. So you need to at least give me a hearing and view me as somebody in leadership. And I think that's one of the things that we are struggling with right now, more so than in maybe any time for some of you. I, I finally had the conversation with Kelly last night. She'd been gone all day and, you know, catching up on her thing. And the first thing I just said is like, I am burdened right now about this election. And not that I'm afraid of the outcome from it, but I'm afraid of the divisiveness that it's causing within us. Because we are examining human beings and applying to them such a harsh critique. And you might be like, well, blank whichever your political leaning is, blank deserves that critique. Okay, we all might deserve critique, but what does that mean when we are applying that and judging that the human beings and individuals? There's a guy who is a loose affiliation. Man, I don't even know. Again, not notes. This is what happens. Guy have a loose affiliation, a, a church, like a Christian church, one of our fellowship that Trump walked into on a Sunday morning in Iowa a few months ago. 
And instead of treating that man with disdain, they open it up with love. One of the reasons that we don't get political here at church, I don't say this, is because, you know, there might be the possibility that somebody could walk in. I've removed, usually within my illustrations and critique, anything where I'm saying, hey, here's an example of somebody who's an idiot, right? Unless they're dead and they've been dead for a while. That's what history is useful for. That past prologue, if I'm going to call somebody an idiot, they'll be dead in the grave, and then if I meet them in heaven, we can have words. Because when I'm dead, some of you all or other people will be saying stuff about me. Focusing on this, though, is that the reason I'm burdened for this is because what it means to us. Because our critique of human leadership can be so high that we begin to distrust all leadership altogether. And when and you're like, well, is that a bad thing? Well, then whose leadership are we looking toward? We're looking inward, right? And one of the things I figured out over four decades of life is that I'm flawed. And if I'm looking toward myself for my only source of leadership then I'm going to do what benefits me, and that means failure. Paul had to deal with this 2,000 years ago, right? Before an election like this, before these times. Paul is just trying to say, look, I'm not perfect. He says this over and over again within the New Testament. He admits it right here, right? Is this the text? Oh, it's in the next text, I believe. In the next text, he, or in the next verses, he talks about this, but he admits, I'm a flawed individual. I'm not the perfect leader, but that doesn't mean you tune me out. Because what God has put on me is a burden to try to help you live more, uh, more fluid, successful, and rich lives in him. So even though human leadership is fallible, Paul says, don't discount it. And in the midst of all this, I think we need to look to that too, all right? Don't let what's going on politically right now affect the way that you view human beings. Yeah, we're all flawed. But God works through us nonetheless. Okay, so I love this when Paul is honing in on then, why do you need to listen to me? He, and he basically says, because of this message. And the word that he uses to describe this message here and other places in the New Testament is mystery. Is ideas about faith that are mysterious. Now, usually mystery is not a word that we use to describe Christianity or faith. True? Because what mystery implies is a question mark. An open-endedness. And you've probably taught for the, li- for the longest time that believing in God, it's finite. Like, this is what you have to believe, correct? And don't deviate from that. And what that is, is a reaction for us to try to maintain control over this. Like I said, Paul talks about mystery in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23. He writes that his goal is that people may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. I love this because really this is quasi-paradoxical. True? He's saying what I want them to do is fully understand the mystery. Think about that. Because a mystery implies stuff that we cannot know. True? One of the reasons that maybe, do you guys like a good mystery in like a movie? You know, there's, there's just, um, there's an idea that one of the reasons that we struggle between the mysterious and what we can know is because it speaks to our own power. So think about this. If you've watched, you know, I've just like found some examples of movies, but you know these movies. There could be spoiler alerts all throughout here. But nothing here is so much that you shouldn't have Netflixed it already, right? Like, he, he could see dead people because Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. I'm just saying. Okay? And if I ruined that, I, sorry. You know one of the reasons why a lot of us like movies of mystery? 
is because really the thing is that you live through the mystery for a good hour and a half, hour, 45 minutes, maybe two hours top, and then it's all revealed to you. So the mystery is not truly mysterious, right? You're like, that was awesome. Would it be really awesome if you never knew that Bruce Willis was dead the entire time? You would have been like, that was just stupid. Because it never resolved itself. We like mystery to the extent that we can have control over it. We do not appreciate mystery when it's truly unknown, when we don't get to see the end ending. And the reason why is because it then steals the power from us to have dominion over the mystery, right? So I'm like, I love mystery as long as I'm in control of it. From a spiritual perspective, however, embracing the mystery of God requires you giving up personal power. The so-called tension between science and faith usually has nothing to do with the facts related therein on either side of it, but more so how we are able to view our world. And one of the reasons we embrace the scientific is because it provides a full meaning. And unfortunately for us, but fortunately I would say, our faith doesn't do that. So when we speak about this as mystery, you're like, wait, so it's all up for grabs? That's not what we're saying here. But there are aspects of life that we just aren't going to be able to understand. Again, I'm a, I, I, I've started to call myself a theologian because I have letters after my name. But really, that's my life is to try to take scriptural concepts and ideas and make them real for other people. And here's the thing. As much as I've dedicated myself to that craft, there's still so much I have no idea. And me studying harder isn't going to resolve all this. The mystery that Paul is talking about is he says, how, how crazy is it is that God could work with this entire nation and then say, hey, Gentiles, now you're in because of Jesus. He's like, that, that doesn't necessarily make sense to me because it seems to counter, but it's a mystery that you, Jewish believers, have to grapple with. For you and I, there are bigger mysteries that we have to come out here. When, when we're trying to just figure out, okay, you know, what is God doing? Why did he make us? Can he make the proverbial rock so large that he can't even move? We, we struggle with these things, and then usually we quit and give up, and we find ourselves looking for solutions that we can control. The big aspect about mystery is you and I getting rid of control. One of the seminal moments in my life about ministry is that when uh, we were looking to start uh, Echo here, Aaron Burgess, who was the elder uh, for a while here, and he and I, we went with one of my mentors. He's now passed away. He was uh, Dr. Bill Brevard, good man of God, really mentored me. If anybody, you know, helped me along that path, I, I always reference him here because I'm like, he helped my past become what I am today. So when it was like, okay, we have to start a church, met with him, and he's just like, so why are you starting a church? You know, and we're just like, we want a place where people can encounter God. We want to go to an area, like urban areas, where people have intellectual objections and help them walk through that. And he was just this, such a gentle old man. And he just paused and looked. And then he just said, and what about mystery? And it was then I could pull the piece of paper out of that manila file envelope and show him our ideas for core values. And the fourth one on the list was mystery. Like when we started Echo, mystery was a value. And we didn't get rid of it because we don't believe it in anymore. One of the reasons we grapple with this is that there's just a lot about this faith that we don't know. And what Paul is saying is that you need to nestle yourself into embracing the mysterious. That's my job, is to present you the, the mysterious, Paul says. Our job is to be able to be okay with it. What are you holding back right now 
or let me rephrase this. What are you clinging on to right now just because it makes perfect sense to you when you should let go and do the mystery? By the way, this isn't just Stevisms 101, right? This is what Paul talks about the whole time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in the love chapter, you're like, this is useful for more than just wedding ceremonies. There's this phrase, which I think is beautiful, because he's saying, you know, eventually, someday, it will be different. Now we know in part, there's a mystery out there, right? We don't have access to it. But then, which means when all things are resolved, when Jesus comes back, when we're living with him forever, we'll know fully, even as we're fully known. The mystery will resolve itself. But we won't benefit from that luxury now. Can you, can you handle that, right? Can you work through that? Is it okay that you don't know? Rob, read the final verses from the section, verses 7 through 13, please. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known, made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. I was reading through a commentary this week, and it said this is one of the most confusing texts in all the Bible. So if you're like, that, you know, you're like, okay, you're nodding along, and then you're like, wait, where are we now? Let's try to break this down a little bit, but we have to start here in verse 10. Because verse 10 is what Paul gets to the crux of all this. He lands on the church. And he says that the church is the method by which all of this happens. Friends, even as we get more and more access to faith, like I can go home, pull on YouTube or anyway, sermons from all around the world. I can hear faith leaders. I can have all this access to information the church is still the vehicle by which this happens. And this is why church is important. Not, mind you, not church like 11 o'clock Sunday mornings at 1301 East McMillan, right? I'm going to say that we try to make this important. But more importantly is how we live and engage in life as the church. And what Paul is saying is that that is the vehicle for three things. The first of which is that the church enables us to help understand the mystery Again, that, that's not like, okay, you know, again, we have a hierarchy. Some people are on top. They tell us what to do, and that's how it makes it all known. That's how some people view this aspect of the church. But understand is that as we live life together, we understand the mystery. And it's confusing, isn't it? Again, the same week that uh, Rob's brother passed away, David and Amanda's daughter were bo- was born, right? Like, that's just, like, how does that just even work out? Just the, the range of emotions that we have here. And sometimes we can't figure out all of that, but in living life together, we are able to make it through and understand the mystery in community. Paul says that the role in verse 9 is to make it plain. And you're like, wait, how do... Again, it seems paradoxical, right? Like, there's this stuff that we can't know, but we're making it plain. 
Friends, it's this process of saying, what does the scriptures teach? What can't we know? And how do we live life together? That's how we function and operate as a local congregation. That's how great churches all across the city, state, world, that's what they are doing. But this is what we need each other for, to understand the mysterious. Also, this is important, it helps us to, maybe slide, access the Almighty. Now, if you have a Catholic background, this is not... Uh, this is familiar to you, because this is one of the main teaching of Roman Catholic faith, right? Is that the church is your conduit into God. So without being a part of the church, and this is why different sacraments become here, that's why marriage is such a huge deal within the Catholic church, because it's like, okay, you know, annulments are things better than divorce, because, you know, this is a sacrament, and everything under happens underneath the church. So if you are a former Catholic, you might be recoiling at this, and you're like, no, I thought that's we were Protestants now. Because it's like, we're all cool, we don't need the church. Understand that it doesn't evaporate it all together. What the church allows us to do the opportunity, and we'll see this later in Ephesians chapter 5, but it is access to God. How does that happen? Through Christ. Looking at verse 12 right here, and this is a verse that is just a beautiful verse. We read it at the beginning of the service. You, I'm telling you, if you're the, I, I don't mark up my Bible, or you know, you know, I don't know if you highlight your digital Bible, I don't even know how you would do that. This is a good one. Because in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, we see that we have the opportunity through faith in Christ to approach God with freedom and confidence. You see the juxtaposition of what Paul has created right there? He's just saying the goal is eventually that you all can have untethered access to the Almighty. And Paul says, you know how one of the ways that happens is I will enslave myself that you have that opportunity. I will, I will imprison myself. I will go through whatever just so that you can have that. Friends, that's what we have. In Christ, and the church is the means by that. We have access with freedom and confidence to God. And then finally, what verse 10 tells us then is the obligation of what the church is, is the proclamation, the retelling of the good news, the gospel, right? Like this is the benefit of that, is it's making God known everywhere to all corners of the earth and the universe. And that, friends, is a very important thing is that it's not just about what God does for me. It's about how I take that message and replay it in my life. Again, have you ever gotten something that's just so great and you got it for free and, you know, there's still more, you know, you're texting your friends and you're like, hey, look, they're, they're giving away free automobiles on the corner. Get there now. Or maybe it's just some, like, really piece of advice. It's like, hey, by the way, there is this Chrome plugin that, that will change your life. Download it now. I mean, those are two varying examples, right? Like, I would rather have the car than the Chrome plug-in, although I'm a high-end Chrome user. Probably still taking the car if I don't have to pay taxes on it. But um, That seems like this, this wide chasm, but still, I will gladly tell somebody a little piece of free information because I believe in it, and then you ask yourself spiritually, the access that you have to God, that Jesus has provided you, how readily are you, how ready are you to tell that good news? The church word for that is evangelism. What's interesting about this text is Paul is talking about that within his personal things. And you're like, well, that's the idea is that Paul is a missionary, a minister, and that's his gig, right? He's talking about this for us. But the issue, and maybe I have this baggage more so than you, and I've had to work with this over the last few years, is my role, my, my, my Christian role has changed, 
is the concept of ministry and what does that look like? Because some of us view ministry within the realm of vocation. Like there are ministers, it's their gig, right? And those are the people we think that are called to do it, right? It's like, I, you know, people are like, what was your calling as a minister? I was like, I decided I want to do it. Like, this is where I hate not being Pentecostal because there's a better story that's out there. It's like, I was reading the Bible, then I was blind for like two hours. And I prayed, you know, prayed, Jesus, make me see again. But then a dove came in and landed on my shoulder and whispered in my ear, you know, you are called. And that was it. Like, that would be an awesome kick-ass story, right? I didn't get that story. Maybe that's what that squirrel was doing in my attic. I did not get that story. It was basically like, I feel like that. And this is the thing is some of us are like, look, that was Paul's thing. He was Paul, right? He was, he, he had this thing. Understand that even Paul didn't have this because vocation is not something. He didn't take money uh, to do the ministry work. What Paul did was he made his living on the side and he did that deliberately to make sure that, you know, hey, I'm going to say some stuff you're not going to like. And, you know, you can't just cut me off. At, at the funding tap because I'm going to go around that and you're going to have to listen to me regardless. And as a result, we have this dichotomy in the church world. It's like, well, some people minister and then for the longest time, it's like we, we, we push our churches because what churches are is this vehicle that we attract people and they come and they, they do this. But what we've done, friend, is we've sacrificed what we're really called to do. And I think that's the big point that we can get in all of this. Because we see the different aspects. We see what Paul was about. And what Paul was out is telling the good news. For better or for worse in his life, if there were positive or negative consequences, he was just still out there telling it. And the truth that he told, though, was not just the truth. Is this is exactly how it works. He goes, no, let me tell you about how you know, crazy, unknowable all this stuff is. We, I believe, are called to emulate him. And the way that I choose to articulate this is that you and I, friends, are peddlers of mystery. I don't know if it resonates with you. All week, I was like, I like that. And you're like, that's probably the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But let's, let's, let's unpack you and I as peddlers of mystery. Going back to the beginning, what, what, what was that concept of the peddler it was the idea that they had no real permanent home uh, brick and mortar location that they were itinerant that they were going everywhere so again this is not the idea that you're like okay i guess it's that proverbial i gotta sell everything i have live homeless and just you know do highway to heaven uh that's a dated reference anyone anyone michael landon google that stuff this whole show or quantum leap, if that helps out. Like, I have no permanent home, I need to go. No, that's not what it's like within this. But the idea, though, is, is to pedal means that we go out and about and do that. So again, it's not that you have to stand up at the gas station, which I've seen happen. This, it being there, it's just like, hey, how are you doing? It's like, good. It's like, so do you know Jesus? Like, for some of you, that just even the thought of doing that. Like, you'd rather, I'd, like I'd rather shoot somebody than stand at the gas station and ask them, do they know Jesus? I don't know if that was a good parallel right there. Don't shoot people for Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But some of us are so frightened by the idea of talking to somebody about concepts of faith that we just don't do it. 
And this doesn't necessarily mean that God is calling you to do that out of the blue. But I would say is that when those opportunities come your way, when somebody at your place of work or in a class with you wants to engage you with a dialogue about eternal matters, do you flee or do you stand your ground and try to say that? Do you look for those opportunities? Again, I'm not the best evangelizer, but and especially one of the reasons is when we go back to this idea of vocation and calling, if they ever find out I'm a minister, they never want to necessarily talk to me about this. Because they're like, no, I, I just don't want to have this conversation. So I have to even be on the lookout for opportunities like that. But you wait and you wait and you wait. And then when it comes, you, you go for it. Anecdotally, I have a, a friend. Um, and my friend... You know, we've been here in the city and had no Christian background. I actually had a Jewish background, but a nominal one at that. And we were trying to, you know, just find ways, okay, where can we see God in their life? And then one day through an innocuous conversation, you know, just at the mailbox, I saw that he was looking down. I was like, what, what happened? He said, well, I broke up with my boyfriend. And I was like, okay, let's, let's talk about it. And by the way, I don't talk, like talking to breakups with anybody. It's just too much baggage. But I was like, okay, if this is it, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to reach out. And eventually that conversation on a relationship came to a conversation about faith in God and what I believe. And again, it would have been pretty sweet if that same dove would have come back, blinded him, and then I could have been like, you know, you need to be baptized now and just gotten taken care of everything. there. It did not happen at that route. But looking for the opportunities by which we can say, who is God bringing in my life and how can I tell them of this goodness, right? That's our peddling. But here's the aspect that I think is most important about that. We're peddling mystery. And for a lot of people who like to tell people about Jesus, that's something they don't want to go because they believe our, our obligation is to provide full answers. And you maybe you've had these conversations and you found yourself, you're like, man, I wish I had like, you know, a theologian with me so I could maneuver through this conversation. And what you need to do is just relieve that tension from yourself and just saying, look, what we're trying to do is we're peddling the mysterious. And so when somebody comes to you say, well, then how does God do this and this and this and this? And you answer the best of your knowledge. And then when you come to a point where you're like, I'm not really sure, you find out, is that because there's a lack, a gap in my knowledge? Or is it just because these are the questions that we just can't provide? It's okay to say, we don't know. And the reason it is, is because that's one of the tenets of your faith, is a mystery. But just because we don't know, does not remove from ourselves the obligation of trying to tell this good news. That's the perpetuation of our faith. The reason that you know today, is because somebody stopped and said, uh, this is a person who needs some good news. Last anecdote about this, my father grew up in inner city, lower Price Hill. Very difficult neighborhood now, it was then. It was where all the poor Appalachians settled. My dad's family were somehow able to get up to the top of the hill. And there were some professors from what is now Cincinnati Christian University who started a church in the neighborhood. And my grandmother, because she was a good Southern Baptist lady, would come to that church. But my grandfather did not want his kids to show up. He wasn't into church. And that minister, instead of just saying, well, that sucks, knocked on my 
grandparents' door one day, talked to my grandfather on the front porch. And he uh, began to ask him some questions and trying to unravel that. And the thing that my grandfather told the minister was, I don't need my kids to go to no church. They're fine as they are. And that minister responded, well, just because you want to go to hell doesn't mean your kids have to. Which is, he just like, intestinal fortitude. My grandfather just said, good point. (laughs) For the rest of of my father's life, he, he was in church. If it wasn't for that man, who, by the way, I had a chance to sit with him when he was old and he was suffering from dementia and he was talking about girls he dated. Like, I would sit with that man and he would just say the most ridiculous things. But one of the reasons that I was so glad to do it is because I understood that without that man, I might not be where I am today. And friends, there are people that we know that really need to embrace the mystery in their lives. And perhaps you're the person to do this. What does that look like in your life? I don't know. But do me a favor. What's past this prologue, right? Think about your journey. At some point this week, whether you actually write it down or think about that, think about how you got where you are right today. Who's invested in you? And maybe don't even stop there. If it goes back a generation, if, you, you know, if this is a conversation for your parents or your grandparents, have that conversation. How did you get here? And then ask yourself, who is waiting for me to do the same? that their eternity could be changed. Last thing, why do we do this? Why do we do this, right? Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 writes this. And again, I'm honing in on the peddling thing. Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. And what Paul is saying is this. It's the natural reaction that we all ask. What's in it for me? Why do I do this? And if we're asking ourselves those things, if we're trying to get something out of it, then we are not capturing the essence of what this is. You know what this is? This is telling somebody the greatest news that they will ever hear in their lives. Would you hold that back from them? No. So as we conclude, what I'm going to pray for is those opportunities for you in the week to come. That God opens up those windows, those doors to other people's souls and to see if that happens in you. Not so that we can gain ourselves, not that we're trying to build something that we can be proud of, not that we're trying to get credit for something, but just because what God does for us. Look to your past. See how that's going to influence your future. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you truly help us to be peddlers of mystery. I ask that for some of us, we need to find peace in the idea that we don't know everything. Will you you do us a favor? Just send your spirit to us. Help us to be content with not knowing. To not just be lazy with that. to, to, To not stop thinking about the deeper things in your kingdom. But to be okay with not knowing everything. And Father, help us to peddle that. To take that good news and to send it out beyond us, Father. We are here today because some people loved enough to tell the good news. Help us to tell good news. Open those doors this week. Or maybe it's not even the doors open, Fathers. Maybe just open our eyes. So that we can see a world that is longing for you. All this, Father, we do not for personal gain. Not to construct our own kingdoms, Father. We do all of this 
because we're grateful and we're thankful for the mystery that is you. Thanks for your love. Thanks for your all. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.